You're listening to Sidebar by NYABJ, a show about the world of media through the lens of Black media makers. I'm Katherine Jones. In this episode, we continue our series exploring the state of fashion periodicals. Carrying the torch of magazines into the digital era is daring. But not backing down are media's daredevils, fighting through a digital revolution, masthead over heels. So I was first exposed to, uh, to magazines through my grandmother. Um, she passed away recently, but she was about 90. She'd been 98 this year. And um, in going to her house, she was an avid collector. So as a kid, you know, sprawled, sprawled out across her coffee table were Ebony and Jed and, you know, Ladies Home Journal and all of the women's lifestyle magazines. So um, that was where I first kind of discovered um you know, magazines was going to my grandmother's house and then just seeing the level of care that she um, that she put in how she, you know, tended to the publications, especially um, her Ebony and Jet magazine. She would laminate them and um, store them a very special way um, to the point where even um, after she passed away, I found, you know, hundreds of copies of her magazines that were still in pristine condition from like 1945 and 1946 and the very first issues of the magazine. So, um, you know, seeing the care that she had in preserving the magazines, you know, they were these kind of works of art. Um, and, you know, that was something that really resonated with me that um, that there could be you know, a publication that could resonate in that way with readers to the fact where, to the point where, you know, they kept them and collect them. That was Mariel Bobo. And also with me is Tahira Harrison. The industry has changed a lot since both women's grandmothers had them reading the pages of Jet and Essence. With Bobo's accolades as an Ebony editor-in-chief and Harrison's as a Teen Vogue fashion and beauty director. These two Howard alum hail from two generations and two well-known magazines in the fashion world. As the act of flipping through pages becomes endangered throughout media, Bobo and Harrison led teams within the era of digital first lifestyle magazines. Journey with us through the trenches of September issues as we explore the resurgence and the revolution of fashion print media. So first off, let's start with how did reading print growing up impact who you are today and what your career has become or what you see for your career? To like kind of buy my own magazines, I was getting like Teen Vogue um, and Seventeen. And then I got really into like, when I was in college, um, I got really into like indie fashion magazines. Most of them were from like, um, like, London and like Paris like just like smaller like indie fashion magazines were like really big for me as well like ID and Dazed and like buying those magazines like for myself just to like cut out and put on my wall but also just to like learn about what else was going on. Flipping through the pages and seeing the editorials and the beautiful fashion shoots and um and all of the beauty pages those were the first places where I saw you know black women and in, in magazines and um, saw the impact of how that could really, um, you know, shape one and seeing themselves as a child in these pages. Um, and that was something that really stuck with me as a kid and eventually led to me wanting to work in the magazine world. And Marielle, so back when you were in school, was there still this like push towards print? Yeah. So when I was at, um, when I was at Howard and studying journalism, really print was it, you know, you're talking about, this is about 25 years ago. Um, so at that time, um, digital wasn't really a thing yet. Um, it was still very much about print. So when I was at Howard, I studied, um, you know, print journalism and I did a lot of writing for the local newspaper, um, the Hilltop where I covered a variety of, um, you know, local news, community, um, news, going to all the community board meetings and reporting back on local news in DC. Um, I also wrote for the school newspaper and covered fashion and beauty um, as well. Um, and eventually, you know, the goal at that time was to be at a magazine. Um, that was really uh, kind of what was what was at the time. You know, digital wasn't really a thing at that point. Um, you know, to be transparent, you know, print publications it took them a long time to 
um, become receptive to digital. Um, I think in the beginning, a lot of print publications felt like digital might be kind of just like this thing that would go away. And a lot of magazines were not really investing in a digital team. It was really about being in print. And so the first kind of half of my career was really de dedicated to sole print. Um, and then as the years uh, kind of transpired, it was really about, you know, the editors really needing to be able to do both, to, to do both print and digital. Um, and then as the years would then go on, you know, really it was would become about being digital first. Um, eventually when I went to Ebony, you know, my role there was to, to transform this kind of storied print publication into a digital first outlet. Um, so there really was a shift there. But back then, you know, you're talking about, you know, over 25 years ago, um, it really was, you know, people were very positive about Prince Future and it was really about having a career at, you know, a traditional magazine or a newspaper. Tahira, so did Teen Vogue have a print version when you were there? Um, I mean, I was there when it was only digital. So it had gone away from being print. I think that oftentimes, I think, so the reason why I think like print is like an amazing uh, medium is because like is because um, I think when you are thinking about stories from a print perspective, oftentimes like you're not thinking about stories that are just like gonna hit for the day and then be like, okay, well, tomorrow there's a new day. I think when it comes to print, you're thinking about like, okay, like we're thinking about this um, months in advance. And so you're thinking about stories that like, okay, if we're doing this in August and this is coming out in January, like what are the kind of like, and, and in some cases, yes, you do know like certain things that are coming out, um, movies and things like that. But I think that you are thinking about like things that will last, like things that were like, it's a little bit more evergreen. Um, and so I do think like that is one of the like, um, strong points of print is that like you're thinking about like how can the, how can we make lasting images how can we tell lasting stories that last beyond like the 24-hour news cycle and I think digital media like one of the things that like to me is like a hindrance is that like oftentimes they don't think about that at all it's only about like okay like how how fast can this can how many hits can we get on the story in a day and it's like but the next week no one will care um and so I think that when I was at Teen Vogue and within like the the sections of fashion and beauty, I really tried to like, yes, have the stories that are going to like hit certain numbers and like really good for the 24 hour news cycle, but really like level that out with stories that I thought were like lasting where it's like, if you were to read this like 10 years from now or five years from now, or even just like more than a week from now, you would still be interested in the story. And like, it would still be like, oh, like, um, this is interesting or this is something that I I'm inspired by this. And it was, it was cool to do that with our work with our creative director to do that because we were both on the same page as when it came to imagery, it was like, how can we create lasting imagery? Like, sure, you can have a backdrop and just take a photo of someone, but what story are you telling? Kind of going back to like me growing up and be obsessed with storytelling, but like, what story are you trying to tell? Like, even just beyond like trends, like who is the person that you're trying to tell the story about and how do how does this idea kind of relay and how are the, will these images live past this day? Um, where it's like a lot of times, like when you're doing research for images, whether it's, it could be a movie, it could be like, a fashion shoe you're always looking back at old older imagery like and that to me means like those images last lasted beyond the time period they were in they were in and I think uh when at Teen Vogue we tried to like do that and it was cool because when you would when I would like work for other brands or when I would see people's mood boards like our photos would be on the mood boards and to me I was like well this is kind of what we were trying to do like inspire people to like kind of inspire people for what they were going to do be an inspiration to like the next photographer or the next stylist or the next like editor-in-chief um in that way and that's what I think like is the difference between digital and print is that digital is like way, a, a lot more fast-paced in print it forces you to like take a, a a moment and like also like it captures the moment in a way that I think digital doesn't and I think at Teen Vogue we tried to like really mesh the two so that like you get kind of like the best of both worlds 
So let's talk about the best of both worlds for September then. So you had the September issue, which debuted already um, for all these magazines, as well as Fashion Month. So let's start with the September issue. Why is it so important? Why is it like a coveted issue? What big deal? Um, so the September issue historically is always an exciting time for um, any media outlet. I spent a lot of my career in fashion and beauty as a fashion and beauty editor and writer. And, you know, as you know, September is typically, you know, fashion month. So for a lot of the women's lifestyle magazines, um, that's a big kind of um, core piece of the content that um, a lot of brands are leading with for September. Um, style is a big piece of it. So it's, you know, typically the month where a lot of advertisers are running their new season ads for fashion and beauty. So those books typically historically have been, you know, the thicker kind of meteor books because um, that's when all the brands are running their new advertisement. And then additionally, um, you know, that's also when all the fashion shows are happening. So it's this dual thing of kind of covering the new season trends, covering fashion week and beauty, as well as, you know, all of the advertisers that are running their new media for um, for the new fall season. So it's, it's a big month in that it's a very style-focused month if you're at a women's lifestyle magazine. But then also beyond just fashion and beauty, you know, that's also when it's, you know, you're covering things like back to school um, and, you know, that that whole realm of what that looks like. And then for entertainment, it, it's also, you know, new season, um, fall, you know, television, you know, those are when all the new shows are coming. So September is typically this big month of renewal, you know, it sets the beginning of fall. And from a content standpoint, that's usually when the editors are, you know, presenting to readers what the new happenings are across all those different verticals, style, beauty, entertainment, um, and then also providing kind of, um, you know, uh, core, uh, you know, updates as far as back to school and education and all those things that parents would be preparing um, their kids for, depending on the type of book that you're at. How is the office in like preparation for this whole September issue? It looks different as well, because I think in today's realm, a lot of folks are working remotely and, you know, we live in this kind of hybrid workspace where folks are doing a few days in, a few days out. But in general, it's a lot of meetings, a lot of planning. Um, editors are, you know, uh, you know, working on their end of the year programming as well as you go into what you would call Q4, preparing for, um, you know, the very end of the year content and also preparing for the content that will come for early next year, which you would call Q1, which is, you know, January, February, March of the following year. So um, also preparing for next year's content for the top of the following quarter of Q Q1. And so this issue, it, it coincides with Fashion Month. So once you're done with the issue, you have to go to all these shows and come up with all this content. Uh, what is Fashion Month like from your perspective and how does that translate into what you do working at these outlets? At Teen Vogue, like I was the fashion and beauty director. So my job was both like kind of editing things. So like it would include like every September and February we did a fashion week package. And so that was kind of like prepping ahead of time. So um, so that involved just kind of like brainstorming, like what cool models might be um, walking this season or what model do we think might have an interesting story? What people like with a lot of Teen Vogue readers kind of want to know, like what people do who work in fashion. And so a lot of that included like who's someone that we think is like um, up and coming and kind of like helping change the industry and like interviewing with them kind of like what are some trends and some um, kind of like of that uh, season like what are some trends that we think might be cool and kind of doing like a photo shoot around that and so when I was at Teen Vogue a lot of it would be like profiles on like people so we did a profile on um, Avina Gallagher who's like a stylist and she works really close with like at Caslada and Telfar um, and she's also someone I interned with. So it was like a full circle. Um, and then we talked to um, different like casting directors. So we figured out like, what does that job look like? How do people do it? Um, we talked to um, like models. So there was this one model, her name's Olivia and kind of talked to her. She had like spoken out on Instagram just about like 
hairstylist not being able to like do her hair and like her feeling uncomfortable so we did like kind of like a profile on her because she was also like in school at the time and kind of just talking to her about like being a model and what what that's like like as a black woman um and so we've done like we did like a story on um Ming and Aoki Lee Simmons like when they were like relaunching Baby Fat which was cool because now Aoki was like recently the cover um because she like decided to kind of go into modeling um and so just like things like that we try to like get people I guess get people who we think are gonna like kind of blow up or like be bigger or make uh changes within the industry like early on so that's one way to that we do it in which so like um making like a package and like doing kind of like photo shoots and profiles and things like that um and then from kind of like fashion week it's a time to kind of like think about oftentimes it's like meeting with PR and like saving like Vogue Runway was like I love Vogue it's my favorite app I feel like Vogue Runway and Letterboxd are like my two favorites so Vogue Runway is a lot is nice because you can go through all the collections and kind of save what looks like you love or you want to remember and so like when another part of my job at Teen Vogue was kind of just like aside from just like creating these packages where we're doing like cover stories and we're doing um editorials and so when we are doing that when you are looking for like um the kind of like uh themes or the like idea for the creative behind the shoot it might be like okay they were showing like this on the runway it might be cool to do something around this or like when we when we pick a stylist that we want to work with like talking with them and like they have their looks but I'm also like okay I really love like these three looks from or I love this look from Mew Mew I love I love these like I remember when Chipova Luena these like two um London-based designers I just remember seeing them at this like it was like kind of like a presentation because they just started having fashion show I believe last year but they would do presentations and I just remember thinking they were such a cool brand and so when we did do something I was like wait I really want to like make sure that we use this brand because I think they're really cool and they're gonna like um blow up and so just different things like that where it's like okay like working with the stylist and working with our creative director to kind of like a, make sure, I think me and our creative director really want to work with like young stylists and young up and coming photographers, makeup, hair, like all those people. We want to like work with people who we thought were going to like kind of blow up in that way or like kind of like, again, like similarly to like the people that we picked a profile, but the people who picked the style, like we thought were like making um, interesting images and um, doing things that I think like felt fresh and picking those people and same with like the designers that we would pick. Um, and usually like an editorial, like there's some like advertising there when it's like, if this person's an advertiser, you might have to like put it in an editorial, but at Teen Vogue, it was cool because we didn't have those rules. So we were allowed to like put a really young designer on the cover instead of it having to be like a Ralph Lauren or like a Michael Kors or something. Um, and so that was like a really nice perk of the job. But I think uh, from Fashion Week, the way that that translates is like, who are we going to profile as far as like designers? Like, are these designers interesting? What designers or what looks or trends do we see that we kind of want to do a shoot around or we just want to like put on our like celebrity cover star? And then also just like what designers do we want to like keep building a relationship with um, in case there's like room for like bigger, whether it's like an advertorial or whether it's just like just keeping the relationship going, um, I think are like the main four thing takeaways. So there seems like there's a lot of like editorial and creative decisions behind the scenes that don't necessarily come to readers' minds that you're making. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about how you've made those decisions and what mark they've left on the publications you've worked on? You know, what's been the imprint on these covers and these issues uh, that you've left with your, um, you know, creative mind? Um, so typically, um, you know, as someone who has come from a fashion background, I think at the various places that I've worked through the years, um, the work that I do is very, very visually um, compelling. I'm, very, I'm a person who's very big on visual and creative. Um, and at the different brands that I've worked at from Essence to Ebony and other publications, when I'm there, my work is really about trying to push the envelope when it comes to the creative um and just doing innovative things when it comes to the creative um trying 
different different uh, things with regards to the wardrobe, choosing kind of bolder pieces when it comes to the fashion that maybe the subjects might be wearing on the cover. When I was at Ebony and I took the role of editor-in-chief and senior vice president, you know, for me, it was really important to find a way to move the brand forward visually. And so a lot of that was, uh, you know, dependent on the covers. You know, the covers are something that at Ebony are very iconic. And I knew that, you know, if I could come in and make a mark in terms of reimagining what those look like, that that could be a great way to move the brand forward and get visibility, especially with the younger audience. So um, one of the first things that I did was come in and really revamp the look of the covers, bringing on an internal photo director, which is something that, um, you know, a lot of magazines don't do. Most magazines work with, you know, a ton of different photographers for their different covers. And it was important for me at Ebony to bring in a photo director that could really help shape the visual and create a signature look for our covers. So I hired an internal photo director who really worked very closely with me in shaping out what the covers would look and feel like. Um, and then it was really about, you know, identifying talent that was fresh and bold and people that maybe might not be the usual suspects. And when it came time to create the creative for the covers, it was about really pushing the envelope, trying different things visually, making sure the fashion was more cutting edge um, and coming up with these concepts, uh, these photo shoots that were very, very conceptual. Um, and so that's something that um, I've tried to bring to all of my work, not just when I, you know, not just in the current role with Ebony, but also when I was styling, it was really about um, pushing the envelope and also really championing, championing Black, Black talent and creatives. I like to pull a lot from Black designers and no matter where I work, it's always about trying to work with as many Black creatives as possible behind the scenes as well. Yeah. So talking, tapping talent. Both of you have worked for places that have been responsible for talent's first cover or first major coverage. Um, talk to me more about what that influence is like um, and how that has really shaped what magazines mean to society. Yeah, I mean, the cover is definitely, it, it's like the biggest form of of, of kind of industry cosign and visibility that you can get. And a lot of times, you know, I think with mainstream media, they, they've been very safe in terms of who gets a cover. A lot of times you kind of have to have hit certain levels of accomplishment in order for a lot of brands to want to give you a cover. And there are many people that have been doing great work for many years that, you know, never get covers or, you know, are, don't get considered for a cover until they're much further along in their career, but they're doing great work. And so, you know, for me, I think it's important that, especially at a Black media brand, that we embrace our creatives first and that we give them those cover opportunities first um, before, you know, they kind of get co-opted by other brands. You know, I think it's important for us to forge those relationship with relationships with our talent early on and grant them that support early on. And, you know, you see that later on in the relationships as they continue to get bigger and bigger in their career, they remember that you tap them first. And when they have moments, you know, you're able to leverage that to get exclusives and things like that with talent because they remember that you were one of the first to really support them. And so that's important in terms of also the relationship building is that you really wanna get in first and show, um, you know, show these artists and creatives that you really believe in what they're doing. Um, and that just, you know, eventually leads to an, an organic relationship that allows, you know, a media brand to be able to get um, a closer relationship with with talent. There are still so many people that don't get that, ma that major platform of having um, the visibility on a mainstream publication, because typically a mainstream publication is going to go after the household names, a lot of times they're not as uh, willing to uh, showcase someone who's more burgeoning because they may feel that not enough readers know who they are. But the great thing about being in digital is that um, you can see the feedback right away with how people are responding to the cover talent and you can move accordingly and you can kind of um, identify who might be someone that you might want to highlight based off of that. One example is, um, you know, an up, uh, I mean, he's not up and coming anymore, but Toby Inwigwe 
you know, Houston based music artist that, um, you know, several years ago was doing a lot of great things, you know, just started on social media platforms, putting out his music and recording on YouTube and gained a loyal following through just social media. Um, but he was someone who, um, you know, I had, who I had been following and seeing, but a lot of the folks at Ebony may not have known who he was and he necessarily didn't have a household name that everyone would necessarily resonate with. But I thought it was important to, you know, to tap some of the burgeoning talent because especially as a Black publication, I think it's important for us to identify and give those cover opportunities to our Black creatives first because a lot of times what happens is, you know, we wait, we wait for them to kind of have a big mainstream moment and then we try to put them on a cover afterwards, but now they've already been featured by GQ or Vogue already did something with them and we're following now instead of leading. So um, it was important to me to to put him on the cover and Ebony was the first brand that gave him a cover and he's since gone on to be in the Transformers film and he's been co-signed by so many major artists like Erica Badu and so many others and he's kind of everywhere now. Um, but we were the first people to give him a cover and he's really blown up and become a lot more of a, a lot more mainstream. I wouldn't say mainstream necessarily, cause I don't know that he still is a household name per se, but he's definitely way more visible. And, you know, again, he was in the Transformers film earlier this year. So that speaks to just kind of the, the magnitude of his celebrity now versus where he started. And do magazines still have that power to be a cultural driver that, you know, that we speak of in this digital era when there's so much internet to choose from to discover trends and artists uh, that are less mainstream? Um, or do magazines still hold that authority? And can they still hold that authority? I do. I think it's just really important for magazines to really lean into that and have a staff that really is tapped in. You know, you want to have editors and contributors who are really connected and can help identify you know, who they should be looking at. You know, I think it's the same. It's the same, I think, in terms of, you know, when you're at a print publication, you want to have editors that are really connected and tapped into what's next. And in the digital space, it's the same ethos. You want to have um, editors that are really very active on these social platforms that are, you know, constantly looking for what's next, that are tapped into who the upcoming talent is. Um, and then it also is taking taking a chance and really jumping on it first. You know, I think that traditional print media has been very safe and afraid to take some of those risks in terms of who gets to have a cover and or who they who gets to be profiled and covered. And, um, you know, in today's climate, I think, you know, for any media company, you know, you have to be willing to really embrace what's next and um, be first. So it's not an easy feat because the landscape is definitely a lot more saturated. You have a lot more platforms and there are so many places now where content lives, not just, you know, with digital magazines, but of course you have podcasts and you have YouTube and all these other spaces where content is being created. Um, but I think for today's media companies, today's publishers, it really is important for them to also have a presence on those platforms as well. You know, I think for every modern day publisher, it's like you need to have a presence on all these other places as well and on YouTube and in all these other spaces where people are consuming their content. But that starts with really first having a team of editors and contributors that are really tapped into what's next and, um, you know, funneling funneling that information onto the team so that they can move accordingly. Um, but I definitely think it's still possible, but it's really about having the right people on board to um, be able to identify, you know, those moments and those people that are leading. So more and more top lifestyle magazines are putting Black women in charge. And these women are transforming and electrifying the cultural impact kind of like a rebellion to how homogenous uh, fashion magazines once were. To me, again, I think magazines, like who you interview, what stories are being written are like cementing history. So like, you're going to go back and look at it. And so it's nice that the people who are at the helm of these big publications are becoming like the leaders of kind of like what is going to be like in the archive of our history at this moment. And it that means that it's not going to look 
it's not gonna what am I what am I trying to say I, I just think that means it's not gonna look like just white people I think it's gonna be like diverse I think it's gonna be like stories that like we've been we've been wanting to tell or like stories that maybe like down the line you're like oh I really wish like I feel like now at this moment there are so many like stories right now that are either being like unearth about like black people and like kind of being told or like we're we're finding them and there were those magazines but it's also just nice to have like the black women at the helm of these specific fashion magazines um and so that means like the imagery that is like um archived and like the designers that are archived will be more representative representative of like what the world actually looks like um and not just the world through a certain lens and so i don't know if that's rebellion but i do think it's important so cementing history is an amazing way to look at it. So let's talk about some of your favorite contributions toward that history, right? So what are your most memorable covers that you've been a part of? Oh boy, there's been a lot. I've had so many over the last 25 years. Um, but I would say um, when I was at Essence and I was a fashion director there, there were some amazing covers that we did. There was one that we did with um, for Essence Festival where there were three covers um, that we did for July. Um, which is typically the month of Essence Festival. And so we had Iman, Tiana Taylor, and Ciara. And that cover was really um, fun to produce because, you know, the three women are very different, but the theme was, um, you know, we really wanted to become, you know, wanted, to, wanted it to really look avant-garde. And we were very intentional about working with only Black designers. And it was Black designers across the world. So it wasn't only Black American designers, it was me finding, you know, designers throughout Africa, Black designers in Europe, in the Caribbean, all parts of the world, and finding kind of under the radar talent and, you know, getting getting in Black, you know, Black fashion from, from everywhere to um, create these visuals and really showing that Black designers, um, you know, are among the most uh, talented creatives. And, you know, we wanted to show that and be intentional in that by really championing Black designers for that cover shoot. So that was an exciting, you know, shoot to do, especially in working with an icon like Iman um, and working with women of different age ranges, because it was important to show how, you know, Black women are beautiful no matter, um, you know, what the age and how the fashion that we were showcasing on that cover could be worn by women of different ages um, seamlessly. Um, but I think the work that I'm most proud of was the work that I did most recently at Ebony because as editor-in-chief, I really played a role in shaping what those covers look like and creating something completely new. You know, when I was there, um, I launched the brand's first ever digital covers. It was something that Ebony wasn't doing. And it started with... Um, you know, working with the photography, but then really bringing on video to make the covers move and be interactive and be multidimensional. And one of the covers that I really love producing was uh, last year, we did a cover with the cast of Black Panther. Um, it was done in partnership with Google Pixel. So that was a big deal because it was a sponsored cover that we did with, you know, a, a tech company that a lot of folks wouldn't uh, necessarily peg with Ebony being a more iconic legacy brand. Um, and we tapped, you know, five of the stars from the film and, um, you know, had the exclusive on all five of them, which was big for us and, uh, photographed them using the Google Pixel cell phone. And it, you know, was stunning. And we also brought in virtual effects and motion graphics to really create this three-dimensional world with what the photo looked like and, and incorporated music and, and really made it feel dynamic um, in keeping with um, some of the visuals from the film. So that was a cover that, you know, really goes down as one of my favorites um, because it also was a really iconic moment in time. You know, this is a film that was, the, the sequel was much anticipated after the passing of Chadwick Boseman and um, the, having the opportunity to come on board and, be the brand that had the cover that had the cast on it and do something really innovative was something that we were really excited about. And that cover was nominated for several design awards. Um, so we were really proud of that one. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is um, me when I was at Teen Vogue, I did an editorial with, or not editorial, a cover story with 
the actress from Never Have I Ever, the Netflix show. Um, and that was really cool because like me and our creative director were just like, we had like read up about the actress um, and we were like, oh, she did like theater. We were like, what if it was like a theater kid? Kind of like photo shoot. And so it was just fun. And so like I came up with like the hair and kind of like the brands that I thought would be cool, like mix with this. Um, what was I going to say? to mix with this theme and kind of just like kind of like poses and things like that that I thought would be interesting and then our creative director was like found the school and kind of like decided like okay let's have a scene where she's like painting let's have a scene where she's on stage let's have a scene where she's in the audience and so that was just a really cool like way to like take somewhat something that's like personal to the person that you're shooting and kind of like blow it out into something that could be like bigger and creative that was like one of my favorite shoots that I've done um I think um Oh, I think when, during the pandemic, um, we, I, I don't know, during the pandemic, I was very much so in a way of like, okay, I think like what I saw happening was like, there are these different like groups of young people who were kind of just like, honestly, it was like a very big TikTok thing. Um, just like different, like kind of like how subcultures are like, um, I don't know, I think subcultures are just really important for creating trends. And I think at that time I was just noticing like different subcultures of types of young people. Um, one of them were like a subculture of like roller skaters, like these black girls who roller skated in LA. And I was like, oh, it'd be cool if we did do like a fall trend story, which will still have like the same kind of like trends that we saw on the runways from the fall, but also like kind of told this story of like these young girls who are in like community with each other and kind of how style plays um, a part of their like, um a part of like their what they do and kind of like how do they kind of dress for roller skating how do they how do they get into roller skating and kind of like what's the history of like black people in roller skating because also at the time it felt like through TikTok again like just a lot of the idea that this whole trend was kind of started by young black girls was like kind of being erased and so instead of kind of writing like a thing piece about it I was like what if we just kind of like highlighted these girls and like put them in all the fashion and have them hair and makeup done and have them have fun and make a video. And that was really fun. I think that was one of my favorite shoots because it was like the first kind of like series of us kind of doing different like subcultures. So we did like these, uh, these black and brown farmers um, in Bed-Stuy or no, is it in, Bed in Brooklyn? I'll say in Brooklyn because I can't remember if it was exactly Bed-Stuy. We did like these um, black girls who like surf in the Rockaways. We did this like, ice skating these group of like young girl ice skaters and so all these different kind of like subcultures of people and like using what they do to like inform kind of like the kind of fashion that we would use and like the kind of like videos we would get the kind of hair and makeup we would do and so that was a another fun way like basing it around the people um I think those all those were like kind of like my favorite um my favorite shoots just because it was like the story was really cool as well as the, it was like mesh like the two things like a storytelling as well as with the visuals and with like the words um yeah I'm trying to think if there's another cover story that I really loved there were so many oh it was really cool also I feel like a lot of the photo shoots that we had to do during the pandemic were some of my favorites um but one we did like Chloe um and Haley um we did like a drone photo shoot with them and so that was really fun because it was like figuring out like angles from like the drone that might look good and then like also just figuring out how to get close to them and so I feel like the shoots where I had where the creative team kind of had to like figure out how to do something like I'd never done a shoot with a drone before so like who who knows um and so that where you have to like kind of like problem solve I think is really fun and then we did another shoot with Kalani but we did it with her like in the house and us like taking photos like outside of the house um because like again like during the pandemic um and so I think those ones are are always really fun because you're kind of like problem solving and thinking of a, a a way to do something that you are so used to doing another way and kind of forcing your brain to like think about other things that's why also I think photo shoots and like magazines are so fun because you're like forced to kind of think of a solution it's like oh the dress didn't make it to the shoot what are you how what are you going to do or like this the whole the clothes didn't make it or like this didn't work out or something like that you kind of have to problem solve and figure it out and still like create a beautiful image um so I think that's in general but I would say like never have I ever shoot um the Chloe and Haley uh 
drone shoe and then like that black roller skater editorial those were like my three favorites so Tahira, you worked at Teen Vogue and back in the day, Marielle worked at Cosmo Girl, which is now defunct. So Marielle, uh, as well as Allure, which is doesn't have a print version, but what do you think of when you look back at these places, Allure, Cosmo Girl, that thrived in the boom of print, but looks so differently now? Um, I think that with anything, you know, the industry evolves, but, you know, you see the connectivity. So for example, you know, um, yes, Cosmo Girl is no longer, but I also spent some time at one point at OK Magazine, which was um, pretty much the precursor. It was, you know, celebrity gossip. And now when you look at, um, you know, outlets like The Shade Room and, you know, TMZ and, you know, so many others kind of like celebrity focused outlets, like those weekly publications were the predecessor of all of these like, you know, social first platforms. So I think, you know, you just kind of see how the industry has evolved. Um, but I do definitely think that there still is a need. I think that there still is a uh, desire for print. I think that print just looks very different now. I think that print now becomes, you know, more of a marketing tool, an extension of the content that's being created on these platforms. Um, but it, it's interesting because when you look at it, you are kind of seeing there's an interesting resurgence that's happening in my now where a lot of brands are now wanting to get back into print, interestingly enough. So there does seem to see, there does seem to be a desire now for people that also want to be able to sit with the magazine and sit, you know, flip through the pages and see the photos. Um, but that has to go in tandem with digital, you know, um, it the it's no longer just print and that's it. You know, I think a modern media company has to show up in all these places. It's also about experiential. How does the print come to life in form in terms of events, places where the readers can actually come out and engage with um, some of the, um, the 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 notables that you're covering in the book. You know, creating events where maybe some of the articles that you may have covered in the book or online can come to life. You know, when you look at things like Essence Festival, that's what that is. You know, it's an extension of the content, really. You know, this is something that was birthed out of, was, out of what was done in the magazine, but it creates this space where now the reader can come and engage with a lot of the writers and creators that are featured in the book and have this in real life experience that they're able to monetize. So I think in today's industry, it's really about having all those things. And when I look at bracket brands like Cosmo Girl, you know, those were the things that they didn't do. You know, um, it, it served a very specific market. It was kind of like, you know, Cosmo's iteration of Teen Vogue speaking to a younger demographic. But I think as social media change, you know, that audience is really living online. And so I think that that's why that didn't work, you know, because that audience was really looking for more of like that fast um you know, content that they could only get on social media. So it didn't really serve that audience in that capacity. Um, and when you look at Allure, I mean, this is a book that's really all about beauty. And that's such a massive um, market that I think, you know, women and 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 readers across the board are always, are always in need of, are always looking for. It's a market that's always going to have, um, you know, interest, you know, the beauty realm. And they're really the only book that... Um, is specifically targeted on that. But they've been able to evolve as well with what they've been doing digitally too. Wait, rewind for a second. There are outlets that are really returning to print? Yeah, so there are a lot of outlets that are doing print. You know, there are a lot of um, digital first brands that are now coming out with these like special edition issues. And there are a lot of traditional publishers that may, they may not be printing monthly, but they may, they may do like a special edition. You know, even when I was at Ebony, um, most recently, like last week, we had just come out with a special print issue that Google Pixel sponsored completely. So there are clients that want it. Um, and there's an, you know, there's an interest, I think, among readers, you know, especially, you know, it's interesting when I was at Ebony, we were doing these digital covers and we would get so much engagement on our socials whenever we would drop a cover. And then in the comments, you would see saying, people saying like, well, where can I buy this? I want to get this. Where can I get it? And so I think that shows you that there still is 
there still is a reader, reader, there still is an audience that wants to be able to physically pick up and feel like they're holding something special. I just think that now the print more so becomes this collector's edition. It becomes this kind of special thing that isn't always offered. And you're seeing a lot more brands that are doing um, kind of these one-offs or these kind of quarterly um, special editions or what they, or they may do, be doing things in partnership with other brands. You know, um, we had done another print issue when I was at Ebony in partnership with Olay. And it was all about highlighting Black female students at HBCUs that were studying STEM. And so the whole issue was dedicated to Black women in STEM and covering these young Black female students in STEM programs and the, the waves that Black women were making in STEM industries. And that was something that Olay sponsored and and it really sold really well for us, especially among the HBCU market. So I think, you know, print now becomes more of this niche thing that is more of a special um, moment as opposed to just a regular monthly offering as it had been traditionally. So print isn't doomed to perish after all. Um, I don't think it's going to perish because I still think kind of like in the same way that like people still like to buy physical copies of book or people books. In addition to like, obviously there's like, what do you call it? Audible. You can listen to a book, but nothing kind of is going to like replace the experience of like reading a book, if that makes sense. I don't think there's, even if like magazines are shutting down, shutting down, I don't think there's anything that's going to replace the experience of reading a magazine. Um, It's not like, it's just not the same as like reading, even if you're reading like a cover story that's interactive online, it's not the same as like sitting on your couch and like reading a magazine cover story and looking at the images and maybe tearing them out. It's just not the same, but I do think, and while I don't know if like, it'll be like a like a big thing again, if that makes sense, I do think like there'll just be a lot more niche magazines um, that come out and that have like cult followings. Um, I remember when I was at Fusion, I did a story about how niche magazines had better obviously they weren't making as much money as like big magazines but the return on revenue that they had was really good and so it just showed that like niche magazines were like wanted and needed and there was like a market for it and I think that there is a market I just think like we have to like reframe what it means to be like successful in print media if that makes sense like I don't think it's going to be like oh my gosh like we're making a billion dollars a year. Like, I don't think that's realistic, but I do think there's a need for it and there will always be kind of like a want for it. And I think, especially when it comes to like, it's one of like the best ways, like kind of in the way that like you make a film or like an indie film, it's kind of like feels like one of the best ways to express creativity is like a magazine editorial. Um, there aren't a lot of ways that feel as experimental and where you get to use like every single kind of talent like you're like using the model you're using the stylist you're using the designer you're using the um hair and makeup person and you kind of get to create these images like there's not another form of creative uh I guess like a not there's not to me I don't think there's another form to be like creative in that way um I mean yes you can make a film I think film similarly but I don't think there's like it just doesn't feel the same. Like, and I, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, am I just like old school? Like, but I just feel like as a creative person, like the act of creating an editorial versus like kind of the act of even doing like an Instagram thing just doesn't feel the same. It's not, again, like when it comes to like kind of making a mark, it feels more permanent when it is like print. Yeah, when, like, when I think about it, there really is no medium that collects that much fashion content contained in like such, in, contained in one space. You know, all different designers and looks and styles and tips. There's no medium, not even social media, because you're like scattered throughout the feeds and everything um, that really embodies what magazines have for so long. So final thoughts. Where do you see the state of fashion media going? Um, yeah, I think magazines are important and like will continue to be important even if they like the way that they are made changes. Um, because as I said before, I think it's one of the only like mediums um when it comes to kind of like fashion that you're able to kind of fully express the creativity and um collaborate with 
whether it's other brands or like other um, creative people. Um, and I also think the images that are produced in magazines are um, long lasting. And I think just like have more of an impact and permanent place than I think like digital media images. Um, and I think they've changed my career because that's kind of like my first idea of what kind of images, like, that's my first idea of like seeing like images of a people who like look like me, but also just in general, like what creative creativity was. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think like I've always wanted to be in magazines and like write for magazines and, and, uh, and do that. And so I hope to continue doing that. Um, um, final thoughts would be that I think it's a really exciting time in media. I think that, you know, when I first started out you know, 25 years ago, if you wanted to work in journalism, really magazines, you know, print, the print world was kind of the only way to go. Um, and if you wanted to work at a bigger brand, it was just really hard, especially as a young, you know, journalist of color to even get your foot in the door. It was very much who you knew and, you know, timing. Um, and it was very much about the gatekeepers and even being able to get these jobs at major publishers. But now, um, you know, the playing field has kind of been leveled because there are so many more places that um, that kids can go. You know, there are, you know, there are so many digital first outlets, you know, and every major magazine now also has, of course, a digital presence and digital really is the way now. Um, so there are a lot more opportunities and a lot of opportunities now for young journalists to move up quicker in their career. You know, it took me a long time in my career to get to the point of becoming an editor in chief. You know, you're talking about almost 25 years in to get to the point of editor in chief. But now you're seeing editor in chiefs that are in their 20s, you know, and, you know, these young journalists are able to move up the ladder a lot sooner um, because the landscape just looks a lot different. So with that, I think it's an exciting time, especially for black journalists. Um, there are so many more of us in the room and you're seeing so many more of us in these big, you know, editor in chief roles and helming major brands, you know, of course, you know, Chioma Nandi, who recently was named, you know, editor of British Vogue following in Edward Enninful's footsteps, which is huge, you know, first black woman in that role. So it's an exciting time. You, there are way more black women now helming major brands and there's a lot more opportunity with the, you know, influx of digital. Um, so I think for any young journalist, you know, definitely take advantage of the networking opportunities that you have on all these social media platforms and connecting with people in the industry. And I think just, you know, learning how to do a lot of different things, knowing how to um, create content across different platforms, I think is key. You know, if you're able to really hone in on, you know, what content looks like on social media and on site and all these other platforms, that just makes you a really great asset to any modern media company. So, you really just, you know, trying to diversify your skill set as much as possible. But I think it's a really exciting time in the industry. Um, you know, I would have never thought 25 years ago when I first started out that the landscape would, would look as different as it does now. Thank you so much. So huge thanks to Marielle Bobo and Tahira Harrison for joining us on this episode of The Sidebar. The Sidebar is a production of the Greater New York Chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists. The opinions heard in this episode belong to the individuals who express them and not to NYABJ. The music in our show theme is Holes in the Raps, and I'm Katherine Jones. Subscribe now to join us for more conversations and industry highlights straight from the source.